Welcome to the Aussie Animal Show on AAA Radio. My name is Rob Armstrong. Welcome to the wildlife. Tonight's program is about the Hatta Kulkine National Park and a 10-year campaign the Australian Wildlife Protection Council mounted to try and prevent the killing of kangaroos inside this national park. Tonight, Peter Preuss and myself are interviewed by Alyssa from the Victorian Kangaroo Alliance. And thank you for stepping in to host the show, Alyssa. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the wildlife. My name is Alyssa Warmold, and I am the president of the Victorian Kangaroo Alliance. I'm delighted to be interviewing Peter Preuss and Rob Armstrong uh, regarding Peter's new book, The Red Sands of Hatter. I'd like to quickly acknowledge the traditional owners. I'm coming from Wurundjeri land. This land was never ceded and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. All right, so to start off with, I guess we'll go to the basics. Peter, could you tell us a little bit about the book and the inspiration for writing it? Well, the inspiration for writing it was um a campaign that both Rob and I were involved in heavily back in the 1980s and the 1990s. And it feels like history repeating itself, but it continues to, to be the case that the National Parks and Wildlife Service are just dodgy. Back then they had this, this wonderful idea of revegetating Hattacolkine National Park by killing the primary herbivore, something that the environment had, has evolved with for millions of years to no avail. I mean, the end result is not good. And uh, we busted a gut trying to stop the kill. In the process, we got the whole environment movement and the animal welfare movement working together. A lot of scientists, academics, dare I say it, even people within the department on our side. But in spite of that, they just went ahead and, and, and killed them anyway. Now, to cut a long, long story short and move forward like 30 years, I've been working on this book really for that whole time. I've written about it in numerous papers. It's been published in various academic books, but I've, I've never actually got the message out to the general public. So I decided I'd try and knock, knock out a fiction book, which is, when you say fiction, you think it's all bullshit, but it's not. It's all 100% true. It's just that I've amalgamated a whole heap of characters, tried to make it a, a readable, digestible hopefully entertaining story, but at the same time, educate people about what has happened and what continues to happen to our wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was I was really fascinated reading the book. I found it really easy to read. I, I smashed it out pretty quickly. And it's the first time I've actually read a book in the longest time because I always listen to audio books. So my family was shocked. I sent them a picture of me sitting there reading a book. Oh, that's <laughs> and you probably recognise some of the characters in there. I did. I did indeed. And, I mean, Rob gave one of them away, which was um, going to be my next question, actually. So Rob is one of the main characters in the book uh, under a pseudonym, fictionalised, I should say. Um, and I was wondering, Rob, if you could tell us about the role that you played in the campaign and what you thought of your character in the book and what it's like to read a fictionalised version of yourself. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate Peter because 
what he did was take the essence of what happened and combined a number of characters and, and what they were involved in and created these realistic and easily identifiable characters. And it brought back so many memories. So I started looking into what was happening at Hadakukine at the moment, and I rang an old department uh, associate, and he tells me that they've killed them all. Uh, the most recent population totals of kangaroos in the national park, zero reds and six western grey kangaroos. They've killed them all. Well, I went up there uh, just to refresh my memory when I was doing the final, final draft. I took my wife up there and she's sort of a little sick in the story because she's been proofreading it and, and not believing a lot of it. Like, surely that didn't happen. Surely that couldn't be the case. Anyway, a ranger came around to, to see, you know, had we paid for our camping fees and so forth. And I got chatting to him and I only mentioned the culling of kangaroos and he went absolutely apeshit. He actually went really, really angry. Not at me, at the department. After he raved on for about 10 minutes, I just said, could you please stop talking just for a moment? Rewind. I've got to have my wife listen to this. <laughs> yeah, it's all true. Yeah, and he just told us the whole story as it was in the book. But worse still, he said, now we've got a few roos here and they're about to start another cull. And what's worse, he said, this is the cutting season for foxes. So... You guys are into well, well you know, the, the, the animal welfare and, and uh, looking after the joeys, the ghost joeys that are left behind. He says, we're going to be killing the, the adult females and then just feeding foxes with the joeys and every cub will survive and then they'll take their toll on the rest of the wildlife when they run out of kangaroos. So they're still as stupid as they've ever been. They're not just not listening to us. They're not even listening to their own rangers. Now, I hope the ranger doesn't get into trouble for, this, for, for what I've just said. But, I, I'm, you know, listen to the locals. The locals know what's going on. Oh, it's truly shocking. Like, I've seen recently pictures that shooters have taken of foxes eating the offcuts, left behind commercial shoots, wild pigs eating the offcuts. Somebody else told me about how they've seen shooters throwing the heads at the foxes. And the other thing I saw was video footage of them releasing a small joey and it being chased by a fox. So they filmed it being chased down by a fox. And it's you think that's that's the value that's given to a keystone, an ancient keystone species in Australia. We've been saying as, uh, you know, protectors of kangaroos for a long time to the farmers, this is not doing you any good. All you're doing is encouraging foxes and pigs to be eating your own livestock when they run out of the, the offal and the joeys. You're far better off having a few more kangaroos than you're comfortable with than bringing in the commercial shooter. Yeah. And this has and been going on for, forever and, and the, they just won't listen. They just don't seem to get the logic of it. Yeah, it's and I was really fine. interested by that. There was a section in the end of your book talking about the case study of a, of a property that had kept kangaroos on it. And it actually, it echoed work done by Terry Irwin as well that was in, in Maria Taylor's book, Injustice, that came out recently, talking about how their property has thrived from keeping kangaroos and from keeping dingoes on the property and how we need to just start learning to do better. 
There's been plenty of examples. Goodbye, Joey showed it in, in film. When that came out, we thought, oh, yes, the world will know. Uh, you know, the farmers will wake up. But they don't because there is this machine behind it. They're making money out of kangaroos. And so long as they can make money out of kangaroos, there is this, this machine that keeps driving and driving and driving the, 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 the kill until they run out of them. And unfortunately, I reckon we're getting close to it. We've been saying this, like, uh, Rob and I, for 30 40 years, and, and sadly, the situation's now coming to fruition, I believe. You go up to the Mallee now, you won't see a kangaroo. Well, that's right. I mean, I was the president of the Australian Wildlife Protection Council, and when I wasn't, Rob was. You know, we were sort of tag-teaming on that year in, year out. Um, but the most recent president of the Australian Wildlife Protection Council, Peter Halen, wrote to me recently and said that he travelled all over the Mallee very recently, and saw nothing, no kangaroos. And he knows what the, you know, how to look for them. They're just being shot out. And so they're now shooting them, oh, I don't need to tell you this, but in areas where they've, they've not been viable commercially, but they're desperate, so they're taking them out of there as well now. Yeah, we've absolutely noticed the trend of it getting closer and closer to residential areas because that's sort of where the last pockets of kangaroos really are, like, if you're out in regional areas, they're few and far between. And usually the ones that are around have found a safe haven of people who love them and try and keep them on their property. But, yeah, sort of in the, uh, the more residential areas, that's where the shooting is happening now. And in tourist precincts as well is the other thing that we've noticed. Oh, and speaking of foxes as well, we've heard of foxes dragging the offcuts like heads and legs into the road of a tourist precinct out in Gippsland which is just uh, horrifying on so many levels. We will have more to say about that fairly soon, that situation. But sorry, we've, we've digressed a little bit and I was curious to know, Rob, how you, how you felt about seeing your character. Was it, was it fairly true to life or was it an amalgamation of some characters or what did you think? I was shocked. I didn't know I was so intelligent. <laughs> Thank you very much, Peter. Like I said, it's a combination of different characters. It's not all him. <laughs> no, sorry. In fact, just as Peter said, we tag team as president. The characters are a combination. And Peter did mention to me that there's a little bit of him in each of the characters. And I can see, I can see that very clearly. But as I mentioned, those of us who were there will very easily recognise the characters that uh, are running under fictional names now, from the events, but also when so much happened over such a long period of time, the way Peter has encapsulated the essence of the story that highlighted the sheer mismanagement and stupidity of the conservation department who destroyed a national park turned it into a national disgrace by a series of quick fixes that destroyed the natural balance of the park. So, you know, I mean, good on you. Had a cool kind national park. As we say, it was nothing but a national disgrace. Peter, the history of the park, very quickly, I'll cross to you on that one because you were there right from the start. Well, right from the start, I wasn't, I'm not that old. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, it was a cattle station. That's something people forget, and that's quite important to the story because uh, in the early days, a lot of the – it's not all Mallee scrub. I mean, there is uh, red gum forest, there is um, blackwood forest, there's uh, uh, cypress pine, there's a whole range of 
different different types of forests, and they were cut down for steam engines, uh, for for building materials. Some of those old cypress are, are very termite resistant, so they were really favoured fence posts and the like. So the area was very very altered, and then a lot of the old trees that remained that were just sort of too hard to get or too gnarly or whatever, they were ring bark in order to promote grass growth for cattle. The Australian Wildlife Protection Council, which was formed in the 60s by an old bloke by the name of Arthur Curipple, who was probably no older than me when he started doing that, so what am I saying, old bloke? But um, we always thought of him as an old bloke. He, he ran a service station in Mildura, and back in those days he was outraged at the fact that he was filling up trucks with kangaroos in the back of them which were being shot in New South Wales and destined to Victoria, to Melbourne where they were being processed for meat. He was shocked at the fact that they were kept alive to be fresh because there was no refrigeration. So we've moved along a little bit from there, but, I mean, he was he was outraged at that. He went to the police. They said, look, it's not a police matter. Go to the RSPCA. The RSPCA said, we're not interested in wildlife. Go to the department of whatever they might have been called at that time. They said there's no rules against it, go to the police. So he was chased around in circles. He went to uh, the Australian Conservation Foundation. They weren't particularly interested in those days either because they saw it as an animal welfare issue. So he started his own organisation and that that became the Australian Wildlife Protection Council. Now, because he was Mally born and bred, he was interested in the concepts of national parks and he was one of the first people to campaign for the Rackham Sunset, for the Murray Sunset, and for Hattacolkine National Park. So we're going way, way back for that. So they, they did make it a national park, not for the reasons that you might think, but because there's, there's lakes there and people like to go fishing and uh, duck shooting. And ironically, those are the reasons why it became a national park. But they still kept cattle on it. So he campaigned to have the cattle removed. But he always said, if you take the cattle off, you're going to end up with a, a vacuum. It just makes sense. There was a lot of grass. Something eats the grass. So as soon as you took the cattle off, the rabbits just moved in. And it was one of the worst infestations of rabbits ever seen in anywhere in Australia, that whole area. So they they shot the rabbits, they fumigated the rabbits, they poisoned the rabbits. While they were poisoning them, they poisoned everything else that might eat rabbits or carrots. So goodbye goannas, goodbye eagles, goodbye possums. It was all sort of dealt with that way. Now... When I say they don't listen to the locals, the the person that ran the cattle on that property, I've changed his name in the book too, but I'll say it today. His name was MacArthur. He wasn't a bad dude. He was a he was really helpful for our campaign. He used to organise tours for us on the property, and he always said that it was a normal thing for kangaroos to move across the country. He ran cattle in the sunset. And that is pretty waterless. But during wetter seasons, the kangaroos would spread themselves thin all the way to South Australia. Then as things got drier, they would concentrate at Hattacolkine, primarily because there's water there, but also because that was the last green pick. So during the dry times, they'd go to Hatter, and then in the, in the wetter times, they'd move across to the Rack and Sunset. So the government decided when they were realising that, okay, they've got rid of the rabbits pretty well, not not quite totally, but they, they were controlling the rabbits, that the kangaroos would increase. So they decided to, well, sorry, go back a bit, they made a, can, uh, a rabbit through a fence and sort of managed the kangaroos within that. 
but the kangaroos, when they came over to Hatter, they could just hop over the fence. So somebody decided we better make that rabbit-proof fence kangaroo-proof, which sounds like a smart enough idea, except when do you think they did it? Smack bang in the middle of the drought. So where were the kangaroos? They were inside the fence. So they literally entrapped the kangaroos. Then they said, well, they're eating all our revegetation. Well, there was no revegetation. It was a drought. And what they could not understand is that this was this is a land of 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 hard times and good times. The revegetation was very likely to happen on its own if you just left things alone or replanted. Yeah, we'd always said that where there were no trees, you're not going to get natural revegetation. You'll get certain herbs, you'll get certain orchids, you'll get all sort of interesting things like that. But your forests won't come back unless you actually actively plant. And we were just totally ignored. And instead, they went in and started shooting secretly at first. And our organisation exposed that secret kill. That really embarrassed the government. Then they tried to remove them on horseback. Again, we were all opposed to that because you, you guys have had a lot to do with kangaroos. They're not going to behave like a cow. So yeah. that was an absolute disaster. They, they The horses uh, trampled most of the kangaroos as they tried to double back under them. Others died in the fence. That was all a disaster. But it was a really shocking that, scene in the book as well. It was horrific yeah. reading. Can't believe that they actually did that. Well, I can, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, they, they they did, and it's pretty graphically described in the book. Um, yeah, really. So sorry to any readers that find that really hard to read, but it's what happened. Yeah, um, well, it's good to it's good to tell that story. And it was part of the reason why then the the environment movement and the scientists and the animal welfare movement all came together and said this is not this is not good and the government then had to go all right we've had a drought a heap of them died some of them died in the fences and under the horses during the muster others died during the secret kill we're down to very few so we think that that will work now that the environment will be able to recover when it rains and it and it, and it did but nothing was done and for 10 years Either it was my name as president on the submission to the new Minister for Environment, because they just changed over and changed over and changed over. We used to laugh and just send them the same submission with the old names crossed out and welcome to the new job. But for 10 years, nothing happened. Well, of course, what happened over that 10 years? The kangaroos increased in number again. So they had another cult and did the whole thing again. Now, the most ironic thing, and if anyone needs any proof that they didn't know what they were doing, whenever they had a drought and they had the kill, they just dug a great big hole in the sandy lake beds and buried the kangaroos in that. The ooze of those bodies just came to the surface, and when the next flood came, the whole lake system was just polluted. Because now Hattacolcone promotes itself as the wetland of the Mallee. That's how they treated it. They polluted it with dead carcasses. Oh, it's absolutely foul. And, um, yeah. yeah, it's just shocking environmental management, that's for sure. Absolutely. And and most of this was not really the doing of the rangers at the park. They were tipping us off. They were, they were trying to support us quietly. Not that they probably want to admit that. Some of those people are probably in top-ranking jobs now. But if they look back, they'd have to admit it was just a balls up from left to right. I wanted to add about the Mournpool Block. Now, for people who don't know how to cook on National Park, there's a series of lakes that are fed 
from the Murray and into Chalker Creek, and are topped up. These are billabongs. And as Peter has already said, during dry periods, it's the only water in the area. Now, the Mornpool block itself that was fenced is almost 6,000 hectares, and 6,000 hectares is just too big an area to tackle at once. And of the many uh, ideas the AWPC put forward was to establish smaller regeneration areas around areas where trees are still producing viable seed and the sections of the Mournpool block could have been regenerated naturally without killing kangaroos over a number of years. Now, we offered to not only suggest that this happens, we offered to supply free volunteers to come in, take down the kangaroo fence and use that material to make rabbit-proof enclosures to allow natural regeneration of the park. And I think we would have had a pretty good-looking park by now. Rob and Peter are both former presidents of the AWPC, the Australian Wildlife Protection Council. I wanted to ask you both, what was the most memorable moment of the campaign for each of you? Like, what's been the most enduring memory? Yeah, it's a really difficult question to answer because there were so many different things that were going on. My, uh, and this is going to set, you know, trigger you both given where, you know, where you, you're coming from with your wildlife rescue work. But um, there was one evening when we were being chased around by the, by the rangers, having been in there to try and stop the shooting. And ironically, I ran over a kangaroo. Oh, no. Yeah, and I, it wasn't an instant kill. And the ranger that was following us dispatched it. Now, he wasn't one of the shooters, but he was able to, he had a gun, so he was able to kill it. And it did need killing. I mean, it was run over badly. He almost cried at the spot. Oh, he might have actually. It was dark. But, like, he was really upset. He didn't want to be doing what he was doing. And that's what I say about the government having sort of forced this situation onto these rangers as well. And I go back to my recent visit up there where, where the ranger just went out shit about it. The current thing. He wasn't there then. But I also have a, a friend. He's no longer a, a ranger, but he was a ranger in one of the other parks in the Pink Lakes National Park. And I used to work with him up in the Northern Territory, and I just bumped into him once at that, that park. And he was telling me how frustrated he was because they wanted to reduce the, the grazing pressure on the vegetation. They'd employed helicopters to take out the goats, but the goats don't behave themselves properly. As soon as a helicopter comes, they scatter. So they don't, they can only get a couple at a time. So the helicopter contractor went broke. And they then went, well, we've got to kill something. And they brought in the shooters and they took out the kangaroos. So the animals that you see at that park are rabbits and goats. Now, that wasn't quite answering your question, but in a way it does because it sort of says what was enduring then was terrible. And it's still going on. The same sort of stuff is still still happening. It's bad decisions, bad decisions. Mm. And um, often not supported by the local people themselves. When you asked the question, two things popped in my mind. Uh, one was a night during a protest and three of us, uh, myself, Nikki Sutterby from the Australian Society for Kangaroos, which was started by Dr John Orty, and another member of Animal Liberation, 
were in John Orty's car. Now, every night during a protest camp, John would make the habit of going to visit the rangers that were patrolling the northern gate entry to the park, and they'd have their little checkpoint to stop any of us pesky protesters getting in. So John established a routine where he'd slowly drive up the dirt road with his driving lights on full blinding these guys every night to go and see, how's everything going? You had any problems? Good. Okay, we'll see you tomorrow. And he'd drive away. Except this night, while the shooting was taking place in the park, as we approached the ranger station, John was driving slowly, full beam lights on, so the rangers were blinded, and the three of us slipped out of the moving car and rolled off into the sand <laughs> and climbed the fences and headed towards the shooting, one of the animal libbers being separated from us in the dark because she practically jumped the two-metre-high fence. A nasty thing to do in the pitch black without a torch. But Mm. once we got in and headed towards where the shooting was taking place, we suddenly realised the shooting had stopped and the spotlights were coming towards us. As this was happening, we caught glimpses and heard movement of ruse, and suddenly we were pinged all around us with uh, shots. Now, either those shots were passing through the kangaroos or they were complete misses, but Nikki and I had to scramble behind a small sand dune and life until the kangaroos had moved off. So that's, that's one thing I'll always remember because <laughs> I don't like being shot at. It's no fun. No, that's pretty memorable. (laughs) But the follow-up is the second, out of sheer luck, um, they heard movement or may have seen us or something, so they drove straight towards us with the spotlights now searching the brush looking for these protesters, and we had to stand up and give ourselves up because they just about run over us. (laughs) To realise now what trouble you'd be in for that or we'd all would have been in, the Victorian Parliament has just passed an act uh, that uh, I think it's uh, a year in jail and $21,000 fine if you uh, protest in a forestry site. I got a letter from Joan Kerner saying, be a nice fellow and don't do it again, please. <laughs> was, was that when she was Premier or was she holding some other office? She was the Minister for Conservation. All right. And I think that was under CFL, was it, Peter, which stood for carcasses full of lead? <laughs> yeah, either that or DCNN, uh, uh, the Department of Constant Name Review. I mean, it changes yeah. the name regularly. DCE, yeah. dead carcasses everywhere. Uh, we had a great conservation department then, but I think the sheer stupidity of the current uh, conservation department or lack of a conservation department, DELP is just as embarrassing. Uh, they've learnt nothing. Peter, in his book, lists the number of quick fixes and fails that happened in, with Haddockine, and we're seeing the exact same thing now. Uh, in his book, he mentioned something that was a campfire joke one night we're up there. I mean, we'd go up there and shoot video and then come back and show it to the, the minister or Mark Birrell, the minister's chief of staff, of us popping out from behind hop bush, showing bloody great holes through the kangaroo-proof fence, which allowed the rabbits to come in and damage areas. And, and we tried everything. Peter did an educational book that was uh, adopted by uh, the education system, which had a self-drive trail for you to 
go up to Hadakukain and actually travel around and see the stupidity of the existing management. Because it was obvious. It was almost like the department would highlight their own stupidity. It, it just didn't make any sense. As an example, these exclusion plots that contained masses of foreign weeds, things I've never seen before up there in that area, but they were very happy that everything was growing, except inside these exclusion zones, the ones that excluded rabbits and kangaroos, there was no natural regeneration of the species they were trying to save in the national park. In some of the areas where that were not kangaroo-proof and were still rabbit-proof, we had natural regeneration of calitris and bull oak and other species that they were trying to save. So they looked at that and said, oh, look at the herbage mass inside. But they didn't look at what constituted that herbage mass. There were weeds. In some places, there was wheat growing in the National Park, and these were probably uh, seeds brought in by the people digging the ditches for the uh, death pits. And I should say just uh, a week ago, I got onto a satellite on Google Earth and zoomed in on a stand of trees. Now, it's one of the biggest natural stand of trees in the northern part of the park. And what did these intelligent super beings in the Department of Conservation did? They bulldozed half of them to put in a death pit. <sighs> and you can still see the rectangular shape of that death pit today in 2022 i was there recently and yeah it's it hasn't recovered that that area it's, it's almost as if it was made yesterday and these pits were 1990 trail that rob refers to i did that recently and i expected it to be totally irrelevant now 30 years later but it's just as relevant now as it was then in the book i talk about how the little bit of reveg that they did do they were using Rottnest Island find instead of Murray yeah. Island. And you, you wouldn't believe me if I just said that. And I was even doubting myself. So when I went up there recently, I just wanted to double check. These trees that they planted, Rottnest Island pine, are now big trees. So it proves that it could be done. If you had a revegetated with the local indigenous species, there'd be the forest would be back. But to look at them, you'd go, well, they're doing well. And most people wouldn't know the difference. But a close look at the seeds, seed pods, and then compare them with the, the local species, you realise, hang on, they've planted the wrong thing here. They've planted a Western Australian tree. It's as if going, all oh, right, we need some uh, nice big river red gum here. Let's put in some, um, you know, Western Australian flowering gum. Like, just don't do that. It's just not a, an environmentally sensible thing to do because those plants will have different characteristics for the, the birds and the insects and other things that want to survive off them. They're very healthy-looking plants because nothing will eat them. What do you think the motivation was for the department to keep going down the route that they were going rather than sort of embracing other options? I, I think they make up their minds and then they do everything to stick to it. Now, we're all, we're all guilty of that. That's, that's just a mindset that people have. But I was telling Rob earlier that there's a similar example just recently with the um, uh, bandicoots they decided were going to be released on French Island. Problem is, there's cats on French Island. So they contracted somebody to remove the cats, but they decided that they would re uh, release these, these, um, these bred in captivity bandicoots 
who would probably walk straight up to the first cat they see and say hi. You know, there's no there's no natural instinct to survive. The the cat killer um, or the the cat remover hadn't finished his job yet. Like it's a big job to do. And mm. said, so, no, no, don't don't release the bandicoots yet. I said, oh, no, no, but it's uh, it's that time. We, we scheduled this to be, you know, the time for releasing. So what have they done? They've released bandicoots and they just turned these things into cat food. And that's now. That's now. That, that, that's like in the last couple of weeks. Scheduling is so important for the department. They plan these things well ahead. That, as it's already been covered, was one of the major problems with the Mournpool block inside Haddock Kukai National Park. The department advisors said, yeah, well, look, we could try and fence off the water and these large areas of open grassland to prevent the migration of rabbits and kangaroos into that area. That's a good idea. Let's put it out to tender and then they got approved and then they went ahead and ordered the work. But because of the delays involved, the 81 was a bad season, 82 was horrific and it led into that horrid 83 drought where all the kangaroos in that part of Victoria were concentrating on the open grasslands and the water around the Mournpool Hatter Lakes. That's when they put the fence up. If they'd done it the year before, we may never have been involved in a campaign. But things got delayed, but they wouldn't change. There was no flexibility. And as I say quite often, it is sheer incompetence. But it was in incompetence after incompetence. And we're probably putting people off reading my book. <laughs> but if I'd like to add, we have, we did even then have, have quite a sense of humour about the whole thing. It was so bizarre. That, that you had to laugh. We, we ended up calling the rabbit the mournful bandicoot because we thought they can't be that stupid to be making a paradise for, for rabbits, but they did. So we thought, well, we'll, we'll give them an out here. We'll just say, you're, you're making a, a refuge for the mournful bandicoot. There's your rabbit. Um, but all through the book, you'll see all these dad jokes. I mean, it's pretty, some of them are pretty ordinary, but there is a bit of sense of humour thrown in the book too. It's not all that, that, Bad. I think I, I mean, if I was listening to this this uh, podcast um, and hadn't read the book, I'd be going, no, I don't want to read that. It's no, and it has funny. some really uplifting moments as well. Like, you know, there's one scene I'm thinking of that was just absolutely phenomenal and very inspiring, which is actually I was wondering as well, are all the events of the book true, including um, something happening to someone? I don't want to give it away. Well, there's a little bit of poetic licence. But yeah. Rob has already described scenes that can be be depicted in that sense. Mm. Right. Well, give it away. Sam, for example, the main character doesn't exist. He's he's, he's largely me, and I yeah. know what you're alluding to. And uh, I can tell you, I was never brave enough to do what uh, Rob just described of rolling into the night and jumping the fence and standing in front of the shooters and stopping them from shooting. But many, many people did. Yeah. And they did stop them night after night after night. But you just couldn't keep that up. It was, it, in the end, they won. A seven-hour trip. Thank goodness, as Peter's already mentioned, some support from local landowners. Something's happening. Perhaps you might like to come up and have a look. And so we'd jump in the cars and drive for seven hours to go and have a look. There was no, oh, send us a pic, will you, through uh, Messenger? <laughs> no, we had to go up and wander the park and try and work out what was going on. There was no social media, but we did manage to get hundreds of people involved 
And these protest camps that Rob was describing where people stood in front of the guns, that, that only came from people going up by the busload. We organised busloads of people to camp up there with the hope of letting us remove the fence and use that fencing material around the remnant trees that were still seed bearing and so forth. But they told us if we touched the fence, we would be prosecuted. So those working camps turned into protest camps. And then those people who did have time did risk their lives in front of the guns to stop the shooting. So yes, everything's true in the book. And in fact, I've just produced a website um, to try and promote the book. And there's one page in it that show that basically says archives. And it's just a photograph of a table full of all the documents that are used to produce the book. So if anyone wants to say, I don't believe they buried them in the lake bed and contaminated the Hattacolkine lakes and stopped the people of Hatter having fresh water, that couldn't have happened. I can show you the archives. I can show you the, the newspaper reports and other things that back that up. So while there's a bit of poetic license and certainly a combination of characters, it's all true pretty well. Yeah, it's been interesting for me, actually. I, I took a bit of a dive into some of the the archives, some of the reports that came out at the time. And one of the management, like the, I don't know, it was, it was a paper written about potential management options, included the option of total reduction of kangaroos. And they had positives and negatives for that option. And it's like, how is that even an option to completely strip out a keystone species that does regenerate all these different plants and aerate and fertilise the soil. Well, it turns out that that's the option they actually went for. Yeah, shockingly. We've produced the, a book called Restoring the Balance Without Killing Kangaroos, and in there were all the arguments why you shouldn't and all the arguments of why, if you didn't, what would be the outcome and, and the benefits of not doing it. All ignored. I'm sorry to bounce around a little bit, but I just wanted to back up to the fact that there was no social media at the time that you were running this campaign. I was really fascinated reading about that in the book, about how you had like a phone tree system to get people to snap rallies. And I have a burning question, which really shows my own ignorance, but how at that time did you get out a media release? It was a lot easier then. There was one place that you would send your media release to, circulated it to all the radio and television and newspapers. So did you send it as a heart? Like, did you have to deliver it or did you fax it? I faxed it. Or, fax. Yeah, yeah, it would be ah. good old fax machine in those days. That was a new invention back then. Yeah. <laughs> that was like the new thing. See, I'm older than Pete. I, I use carrier pigeon quite often. because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like, there's so many positives to social media, but also, you know, negatives as well. But it's just hard for me to to comprehend running campaigns prior to social media because they've become so fundamental now. It's interesting to look at how it was done. And I, I was actually talking to my mum about this because she used to do environmental campaigns in the late 90s and early 1000s. And she said, oh, the media just came to me. <laughs> We're going to have to go put out media releases. You know, we'd do something and the media would come. And it's like now there's so much, you know, we're so saturated with news and things happening that, I don't know, maybe it's just harder to get media attention now. What do you guys think? 
Well, we never really had problems getting media attention, did we, Rob? No, in fact, um, probably unheard of, but television crews used to throw me in the back of a... They said it was a Cessna. I thought it was a Volkswagen with wings. <laughs> and they'd fly me up there to do a report for the really? night's news. Yeah. Darren yeah, Hinch used to send us up quite a bit. Wow. He ran a, a current affair program at the time. He did a great story on it. He, he had uh, um, helicopters flying over the lakes as they started to flood. And there w would be footage somewhere of the, the, the floodwaters just flowing over the death pits, which was just black ooze from the blood and guts of the kangaroos coming to the surface and through the sand. Oh, man, I'd love to find but the that. The other thing is we are fairly inventive. Yes. The, the scene that is described in the book about the uh, the protest and the, uh, the people in kangaroo suits and... Um, I mean, we did pretty weird things, and it appealed to the to the media. I mean, there was that that time. Remember, Rob, when we had a little coffin and and walked through the academics that were eating kangaroo meat and handing out recipes for all the all the diseases you could potentially get by eating kangaroo meat. You know, it was flying. Where was that? Was that that was Canberra, wasn't it? That was in Sydney. Sydney, yeah. Think, so think, you know these. The Victorian committee got up and went and did this procession. But the strange thing was they let us do it. They stopped their conference for us to do our own little version of street theatre. And, <laughs> uh, and it was fantastic. And they'd even organised media for their own conference. So they were sort of happy that they got some attention through what we were doing because their own conference was probably pretty boring and wouldn't have got anything on the on the news. <laughs> it backfired on them because the message was, don't eat kangaroo, and, and their message was trying to be, yeah, eat it. Um, oh. So there was all those sort of things that we, we did. Um, and we had some pretty amazing characters too. Um, I mean, you know Laurie Levy now, but, I mean, back in the day there was Marilyn Wilson, there was Ninon Phillips, there was uh, William Rickett. Um, and they did stuff like that. I mean, the scene that I described in the um, in the film of a guy with a car and a big sign on the car and just stopping in the middle of traffic and the mm. cops coming up to go, what's going on? He said, oh, bugger of a place to break down. You know? um, the cops were friendly and waved traffic around him and said, you know, when you're ready and you fixed your motor, can you please move on? <laughs> and the media would love that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean... I loved seeing Laurie in there because Laurie, is, he's a big inspiration of mine and a mentor of mine. Um, well, I hope he's okay with what, like, he's not in the book. Yeah, so I'll fictionalise characters. There's a person that has a similar name and many characteristics, but he, there's a combination. I haven't spoken to Laurie yet. <laughs> I hope he's all right with it. I'm sure he will be. It's, yeah, I think so. looking all right, I think. Yeah, and, I mean, it, it, it's all, it's... Yeah, phenomenal stories and amazing people. And, you know, what I'd, what I'd love to know from you guys as well is what, what do you make of the, the evolution of the kangaroo movement to where we are now? Like did you expect it to still be going on in the way that it is? I, I didn't, especially uh, I did not expect the commercial kill for the pet food to be reintroduced into Victoria. Uh, and I thought the trial in 2014 was shocking. 
uh, but to see the report that was issued in 2018, which said uh, this is unsustainable, we've got to stop it, to have the government say, well, yeah, that, that's, you know, thank you for the report. We'll have a look at that, but we're going ahead and we're increasing the quota. Yeah, and expanding over the whole state. Yeah. Except for places where kangaroos don't live. <laughs> the only places where you can't kill them, essentially. They Victoria. will be looking there very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, numbers well, look, are crazy. I, I, to answer that question, I'd say... What, regardless of what campaign you're involved in, if your opposition can make money out of it, if you think you've won, don't throw away your T-shirts and your, and your badges and the other stuff that you could sell to, to, to finance your campaign because it'll come back. Mm. And the best evidence of that is you just said to yourself, Rob, you thought it wouldn't happen. Back in 1985, the government, and it was a Labor government, promised that this would never happen again would never happen because they saw the last time there was commercial shooting, it didn't take long, there were hardly any kangaroos left. And they went, well, it is unsustainable in Victoria. We will never do it in, in Victoria. Now, you might understand it if it was a Liberal Party that now allowed it, but it's another Labor Party that's allowed it. I don't, you know, it doesn't make sense, but money talks. Yeah, and it's it's free. That's the thing for them. It's a free, you know, what do you call it, quotation mark, resource. I don't think well, it really is a resource, green, but they you know, do. The, yeah, the pressure it puts on the people that really care for wildlife and don't want to see it happen and, and try and look after the animals that are left behind, the joeys and other things, it's, it's not exactly free. It's just they're not paying. Yes, isn't that the truth? Absolutely. Look, we've had a cool kind. We experienced... Conservation Minister, one after another, which would not do their job. In a had issue where Rob McKenzie, Joan Kerner, Kay Setches, and the amazing Steve Crabb, who was brought in just to say no to everyone within, within the environmental movement because of the media that we generated and the amount of coverage, the number of um, uh, print articles that the had issue was getting. Steve was brought in to be the hard man to put a stop to it. Foolishly, anyone who's involved in a campaign, as Peter just said, keep your T-shirt, keep the bumper stickers, because the moment you think it's won, it'll come in through the back door. In fact, uh, I, I, I'm not quite sure, and I, I, I'm sure I'm just checking the time. Uh, Pete, we better leave for Hatter if we're going to rip down that fence before sunup. Yeah, it's a seven-hour drive. <laughs> oh, wouldn't it be nice to encourage some young people to do that? <laughs> uh, allegedly, uh, I'll have to get uh, – I'd like to make a phone call, Pete. <laughs> I'd like to get some legal advice on that. But, yeah, we had to physically stop people from ripping out the fence because we believe we could win the issue with intelligence and logic. We forgot we were dealing with the government department. Yeah, and it seems we're still very much facing the same issues now. Do you, with with your wealth of um, of of hindsight and wisdom, do you, what do you guys think that the movement should be doing? Where sh you know where should it go from here? Do you think? Ooh, Tough well, one. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll have a go at it. Mm. It's time to get fair income. 
we don't have no one in this state standing up for wildlife in regards to government department. Mm. It's time for the people of Victoria to demand that their wildlife is protected, that the people who care, raise, rehabilitate and release wildlife should be supported, and it's time for the government to do its job, take care of our... Look, I hate the term resource, but Mm. wildlife is a resource. You just go and look online, go to YouTube and put in any reaction Australian animal video and you'll see what what the world thinks of our wildlife. They think they're fantastic. They love Mm -hmm. them. It generates huge amounts of money and someone's got to take responsibility for that and it should be the relevant government authority, not a whole bunch of volunteers that spend all their time, effort and money doing what the government should be doing. Yeah, um, there's my soapbox. Yeah, no, absolutely. And meanwhile, like whilst all those volunteers are spending their money and, and their efforts on wildlife, the government's actively undermining their efforts to try and, you know, make people live harmoniously with wildlife and value wildlife. Yeah, and meanwhile, the government sees them as pet food or pests. So, mm. you know, I, I totally agree that the, the attitude shift needs to come from the top. Because, you know, we're never going to change the minds of certain people, but if their behaviour is against the law, then we've got a much better chance of cracking down on it. At the moment, obviously, it's, um, you know, supported at the highest level. And I do agree with uh, Rob in, in terms of getting the public to know more about it. Like, it's mm-hmm. uh, it, it's out there every night of the week, and it, yet people don't realise it until it's actually behind your back fence. Yeah. And that's the shocking thing that I've discovered, you know, with the the shooters moving in closer to residential areas, things that are extremely shocking aren't newsworthy because, oh, apparently aren't newsworthy because they're technically legal. So there has to be a breach of the law for it to be newsworthy. But it's, to me, more shocking that these things are actually legal, that it's legal for someone to look over their back fence and see kangaroos being strung up still alive and having, you know, their legs cut off with bolt cutters and to have, you know, kangaroo parts being strewn around in the streets and stuff. And, the, you know, the fact that that is legal to me, that's the story. But there's been reluctance to publish this stuff because it's like, oh, well, they had the right permits. So. Oh, I hate that term. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's people who want to go out and do something. We've seen that with the kangaroo cull in the ACT. A lot, a lot of people this year, they just put up with the fact that, they thought, oh, yeah, well, they've got to control the kangaroo numbers. Rubbish. There is a – Dr. John Audie made me an absolutist. He said there is absolutely no reason to kill kangaroos under the auspices of management. And I believe that when he told me the first time, and I still believe it today. There is no argument that will stand up to decent examination on the reasons for killing kangaroos. Yeah, and it's very much that colonial attitude, isn't it? Like kangaroos have been here for 20 million years managing their own populations and then, you know, white Western governments claim that they need to be managed. Now, having been here for a couple of hundred years, you know, it's just (laughs) colonialism, isn't it? And there's been some great teachers who've really opened my eyes to that, particularly um, Auntie Ro Mudge and Godwin and 
Auntie Janet Turpy Johnson, who've really spoken about the colonialism aspect. And it's it's just so obvious once you realise it that it's, yeah, the same. It's just this whole attitude that that we own them and we deal with them how we please, not that they've got a place here that they've held for millions of years and that they should just be left to do their thing. The one aspect um, which has a lot to do with how to cook kind, the kangaroo industry and commercial killing of wildlife, is the fact that, as has been mentioned, that, you know, this is a country of drought and flooding rains. We have good seasons and we have horrible seasons. And to interfere with the natural selection process of an Australian species is species-threatening. Now, for some reason, that made sense to the Victorian state government back in the early 80s when the AWPC and the ACF fronted them about the commercial industry. They acknowledged it was a threatening process. Why all of a sudden is that no longer relevant? where it's really the most important issue there is out there. Yeah, and especially this whole, you know, the thing that really grinds my gears is this claim that colonialism has been good for kangaroos when that's not actually substantiated in any way. Like, you know, kangaroos, it's been proven that they're not dependent on water sources, you know, new water sources, or that kangaroo, oh, the dingoes were a large predator of kangaroos even. So, yeah, it's just it, it's all this mythology that... It continues to perpetuate the persecution of kangaroos. We saw it at Haddock, didn't we, Pete? Do you remember their options? I'm just trying to remember uh, that they come up with uh, under the pressure that things, this is after the 83 drought, they put forward, and it's covered in other areas, but they come forward with the idea to remove the kangaroo-proof fence, and that would allow the kangaroos to move back into the sunset Murray Sunset areas back towards the South Australian border and fur further north towards the Murray and would take the pressure off Hadakulkine. So that was a pretty good option. It was very close to what we wanted to do. But other things were like the option of driving the kangaroos out again, doing another drive to try and push them out of the block, or fencing up smaller areas and do an active regeneration, which is the AWPC's line, killing the can all the kangaroos, or doing nothing. Well, while we believe they were doing nothing and felt very frustrated about that, we didn't know that they were killing the kangaroos. So far away and, and at night and it's all the reasons why the, the industry gets away with what it does because we don't see it. The average person doesn't know what's going on. You know, and just to reiterate and sort of getting back to the book, sorry to plug it, but... Yeah. Um, the last chapter of the book really gives you the facts and figures behind the whole kangaroo industry and how it gets away with what it does. That last chapter you alluded to before was another case study. It's not really about Hatter itself, but it's tied in with how the mentality is. I guess it is that colonial attitude of shooting is the only way around it. I feel that last chapter is so important that on the website that promotes the book, I put the whole chapter in as a freebie. You know, so people can read that. And if they do read that and digest the figures, it's a bit more didactic. It's not the, the funny novel approach of, you know, guys hanging around the campfire and doing whatever they do in the rest of the book. That last chapter is just facts and figures. But it, it's put there to arm anyone in that, that's faced with anyone who says, we have to kill kangaroos. 
the facts and figures in that last chapter will give them the, the information that they can fight back and go, no, you don't have to. Yeah, I found that chapter really interesting, I must say. I mean, I found the whole book fantastic, so definitely recommend it to the dear listener. <laughs> to the <laughs> The dear listener. Oh, I'm sorry. We, lo- we love our <laughs> listeners, Pete. Yeah, I forgot they're there. <laughs> we're, we're chatting away. <laughs> it's only going around the world Thursday night, so don't worry about it. They love our accents, apparently. Um, oh, do they? Yeah, yeah. I tried <laughs> to explain that the problem is, you know, English is my second language. I My primary language is Australian. <laughs> well, and we should say as well that um, Peter's very kindly uh, offered a special deal by his website. Do you mind me talking about that, Peter? No, please do because it's... Oh, okay. <laughs> well, um, so essentially there's going to be... Um, some organisations on the website that you can choose from when you purchase the book to donate $5 from the sale of the book, which I believe is Peter's royalties, which is very generous, to these uh, to these groups that are currently fighting for kangaroos. Yeah, um, so to make it clear that the purchaser doesn't donate an extra $5. Yes. In Victoria, uh, sorry, in Australia, I'll chuck in the postage as well. It's just to get the book out there, get people to read it, get them to understand what the, the, the story is. And at the same time, hopefully, support organisations such as yours. Yeah, which is so wonderful, and thank you for that. Definitely great for us because, yeah, most wildlife organisations uh, run off the smell of an oily rag. So, and I just remembered my my <laughs> membership's due. Uh, I I subscribe to um, that line that oh, I wouldn't want to be a member of an organisation that would have me as a member. <laughs> Pete, look, I reckon we'll follow up this with another short interview specifically on the book. Yep. Oh, I, yep. I'd better send you through a logo. Yeah, yeah, yep. It's, um, I pressed the, the uh, Make It Live button a couple of days ago. Oh, oh that's exciting, uh, It's still isn't it? tweaking, it's still editing it a little bit, but it works. Okay, give us the website. All right. Um, it's a funny one. It's uh, the, all the Ws, the Red Sands of Hatter. All one word. dot com, and Hatter. I guess everyone can spell the Red Sands of. And Hatter is H A T A H. There we go, folks. A, a good read. A little bit of Pete and a little bit of myself, and uh, quite a lot of some of the other volunteers that worked in the wildlife and conservation movement in the. Oh, really, from the 80s through to the current day, but primarily in the 80s and early 90s. Alyssa, thank you so much for stepping in. It was going to be awkward for me to interview myself. (laughs) You did a wonderful job. No, it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you both. You know, I I so admire the the campaign. It's phenomenal Uh, what, what you guys did and your team and... I very much feel like everything, you know, working particularly, I mean, I think any sort of wildlife campaign and it's really hard work and we very much stand on the shoulders of those who've worked in the past and are still continuing to work and we all, you know, rely on each other. So, yeah, it was really interesting for me looking, looking at the history of such a phenomenal campaign and just outstanding work that you all did. So, yeah, it's been a great learning experience for me and it's wonderful to chat to you both about it. So thank you for for inviting me on.
And Peter, thank you, thank you so, so much. much. One for the book um, because it recreated a fire in, I won't say in, in my soul, but, uh, mate, it's unfinished business, had a cool kind. You reignited the flame. Well, it'll be finished when that fence goes down and they stop shooting. When will that be? Hang on. Oh, let's put in a submission tomorrow about that. It's a good suggestion. The department probably hasn't thought of those two options. <laughs> right. Let's bring out those old T-shirts. Uh, I turned up with one covered in bloodstains and it had written on it, I survived, had a cool kind, 1990. <laughs> I actually have one. I have a, I have a kangaroo campaign T-shirt from the 90s that a friend sent me. It's pretty cool. One of the big collector's items is save the Mournpool Bandicoot bumper stickers. <laughs> well, here's one for you. The Hatter Colkine store actually does sell a T-shirt that says Hatter Matters and there's a kangaroo on it. Wow. That's probably the only kangaroo you're going to see if you go to Hatter. <laughs> but they can tell you they used to be there and, and probably show you where they are right now. Just go to the beach on Lake Lockie. There's this patch that looks like bad coloured ooze and when I was last year years ago it had wheat growing out of it. It's a huge death pit right in the lake bed. And that's wildlife management in Australia. <laughs> Makes you proud to be Victorian. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? All right guys. Thank you so much, <laughs> Peter. We will do uh, another one specifically on the book. As I said, Alyssa, thank you so much. I hope this has been of interest to people out there. This radio station is dedicated to animal advocates and it's very important that um, perhaps you get a little bit of a hint of the inside of a quite long-running campaign and one for a while there that we thought we had won. Uh, the only person who won was, uh, well, there wasn't a winner. It was certainly not the environmental movement. It wasn't the government. They didn't get what they wanted, and it definitely wasn't the Australian wildlife. By exposing the anatomy of this campaign, it will be a, a learning tool of interest and benefit to campaigners on any wildlife issue. We certainly made plenty of mistakes, but we did achieve quite a lot in those 10 years, although in retrospect, it doesn't seem like it. In 1990, the scientists responsible for the research that was going on in Hatakukai National Park had given public assurances that killing would not extend outside the kangaroo-proof fenced area called the Mournpool Block until the effects of shooting had been fully assessed. Well, in 1991, a trio uh, from the Australian Wildlife Protection Council visited the park on the anniversary of a large kill and found that the park was set to experience a population explosion of rabbits. And to make it worse, weeds were taking over the park. Some of this weedy stuff called hot bush would make rabbit control almost impossible. Grass and weeds were growing high and dry as the summer approached and could explode in the flames anytime with one of the local lightning strikes. And the water in the lake system, the Hatter Lakes, is now polluted with the body fluids of the dead kangaroos that were buried in the death pits only metres away from these lakes. And after 12 months with a massive number of kangaroos removed, regeneration was 
still going to have to be actively done. Natural generation is not succeeding because there's not enough trees producing seed, viable seed, to allow natural regeneration if the park management wants to return these mourn pool grasslands to woodlands. While they're investigating these issues, the three members of the AWPC discovered that shooting was taking place outside the mourn pool block. This resulted in a press release on the 12th of October, 1991, which I will now read. On the first anniversary of the massive kangaroo slaughter at Hadakukai National Park, Victoria, management celebrated by doing what they do best, killing more kangaroos. Family groups of campers were once again woken to the sound of gunfire at 3am this morning. Although very few kangaroos remain alive inside the main killing area, known as the Mournful Block, repeated gunfire continued well into daylight. Shooting was also heard outside the Mournful Block, which is contrary to the controversial ministerial directions for park management. The AWPC will now call for the resignation of the departmental researchers who promised that they would do so if shooting began outside the Mournpool block before the effects of the program could be assessed. Rob Armstrong, president of the AWPC, who is in Hatta National Park with a small team of researchers, said today, visitors to the park will see far more rabbits than kangaroos. Present park management is determined to eliminate the rabbit's main competitor. Hadakulkine is now a weed-infested breeding ground for the European rabbit. Sarcastically known as the Mournpool Bandicoot, rabbits are set to take over the park. Woody weeds such as hopbush will make rabbit control impossible. 1080 poisoning of rabbits has not succeeded, but rather has killed natural predators such as the goanna and wedge-tailed eagles. Meanwhile, the rabbits will continue to eat the plants that our kangaroos were killed to protect. Throughout the park, some token efforts have been made to tree guard seedlings from rabbit browsing. This could have been done on a larger scale without the wholesale slaughter of our native wildlife. Since 1982, the AWPC has consistently argued that this is the only approach that will return the cypress and baloke forests cleared for cattle grazing almost a century ago. The AWPC's offer to provide free labour for such a task has been repeatedly ignored by every conservation minister since Rob McKenzie. Steve Crabb has taken the quick fix approach, which has cost the Victorian taxpayer tens of thousands of dollars. As Rob Armstrong pulled the seeds of introduced weeds from his socks, he said, when will Steve Crabb learn you can't shoot weeds? That was the 12th of the 10th, 91. During the interview, you will hear Peter say on two occasions that the Hattakukai National Park campaign was really the first time that animal welfare activists joined together with environmentalists and even academics and scientists all joined together on this campaign. The culmination of the campaign was a letter published in The Age on Wednesday, the 23rd of October, 1991. The letter is signed by Graham Colson, Institute of Education, University of Melbourne, 
Graham Colson is a recognized name in the wildlife community because of his papers and work over the years. But this letter was also co-signed by Rob Armstrong, Australian Wildlife Protection Council, John Orty, Australian Society of Kangaroos, Mark Elgar, University of Melbourne, Mark Evans, Australian Wildlife Protection Council, Carol DeFrager, Australia and New Zealand Federation of Animal Societies, Laurie Levy, Animal Liberation, Margaret MacDonald, Australian Conservation Foundation, David Middleton, Zoological Board of Victoria, David Morgan, University of Melbourne, Jamie Ross, Victorian National Parks Association, Ian Temby, the Australian Wildlife Management Society, Sally Troy, the University of Melbourne, and Brian Walters, the Department of Conservation and Environment. And this letter was headed, Rue Cull Betrayed Public Confidence, from G. Coulson, lecturer in zoology, Melbourne University, and 13 others involved in wildlife protection or research. It reads, the Department of Conservation and Environment has disclosed that kangaroos were shot recently outside the Trial Mournpool Block in Hattakukai National Park. This action is clearly beyond the mandate set out in the management plan, Restoring the Balance, which was released by the Minister, Mr. Crabb, last year. The plan calls for ongoing scientific assessment of the effects of culling within Moorpool before consideration be given to extending the process to other areas of the park. This monitoring has not been completed. We call for an immediate moratorium on all shooting in the park. Shooting must not again take place outside the Mournpool block before an extended management plan has been formulated and presented for public scrutiny. No further shooting within the Mournpool block should occur until the fence is upgraded to a suitable kangaroo-proof standard and all scientific data is made available for independent evaluation. By allowing this unsupportable cult to proceed, the government has betrayed public confidence and abandoned scientific wildlife management in Victoria. The minister must ensure that those responsible for this unacceptable action are brought to account and guarantee that future kangaroo management at Hattakulkine is conducted on a rational, informed basis. Some of the people who signed this document were researchers for the Arthur Ryler Institute, the research branch of the Conservation Department. It was a big event. We thought we had it won. We were wrong. 